I'm going to split this, this story into two. I, I rewrote this sermon several times this past week. I can't get past this one little idea. And so I'm going to have to do the majority of the story later. But that's just a heads up. Um, hopefully you're there. Uh, last August, 60 Minutes uh, did a uh, story about a 15-year-old free ride skier uh, by the name of Jacob Smith. And if you don't know anything like, uh, about uh, free ride skiing, like I didn't know anything about free ride skiing, it's basically the, the kind of skiing that doesn't take place on the smooth, carved out, uh, obstacle-free slopes that you would find at a resort, but rather it, it takes place on the jagged, untamed, natural slopes of the mountain. It's dangerous, it, it's risky, it's for thrill-seekers, it's one of the fastest-growing disciplines in the sport of skiing, and I have a picture of the big Kuyar Mountain in uh, Big Sky, Alaska. You can kind of see, hopefully you can see that, that yellow line going down. That's the, that's the route that you would take if you're a freeride skier. And you're just going to try to navigate the cliffs and the trees and the rocks and just free fall. 50 degree angled slope. Uh, it's so steep. It's so sketchy. If you can do the big Kuyar, you matter in freeride skiing. And so this 15-year-old Jacob Smith actually did it, only he did it when he was 12. Could you imagine that? As incredible as that is, though, the reason that 60 Minutes was doing a story on Jacob wasn't because he was 12 when he conquered the big Koyar. It was because he was 12 and blind when he skied that route. Jacob Smith was the first ever legally blind skier to freeride the big Koyar. His vision is so bad that, you know, when you're in the eye doctor and they've got the chart and you got the big E at the top of the chart, his vision's so bad that in order for him to see the big E in an eye exam, they'd have to blow it up four times because he can't see. His depth perception is so bad. He has no peripheral vision. 60 Minutes had their designers work with his doctors to come up with a visual to give us an idea about what he could actually see, and I have a picture of that visual as well. This is what he can see as he's skiing down the Big Kuyar Mountain as a 12-year-old. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Here's the even crazier thing. The way that Jacob manages to get down the mountain literally blind is by listening to the voice of his father. He's got a radio turned all the way up. It's in his chest pocket. And he's at the top of the mountain, and his dad's at the bottom of the mountain, and his dad's got the other radio. And Jacob skis, and his dad talks the whole way. Turn right. <laughs> okay, Dad. Turn left. Right, right. Uh, more right. Watch out, there's some trees coming. <laughs> it's up. That's a cliff. Slow down. Speed up. All the way down the mountain. At one point in the interview, the journalist asked Jacob how much he trusted his father. <laughs> a little laugh, glimmer in his eye, Jacob said, well enough to turn right when he tells me to turn right. Today, Jacob is a 15-year-old, 2,800 freeride skier because he knows how to listen to and be guided by the voice of his father. I tell you that story. Because I think a similar thing could be said of Philip in Acts chapter 8. It's not that he's a blind man skiing down a, a triple black diamond. 
but he was definitely moving around in uncharted territory. The terrain is full of hazards, full of dangers, full of all kinds of obstacles. No one had ever gone to Samaria before with the gospel. He was like Lewis and Clark exploring the new world for the first time. Not only that, but he was walking completely blind. He hadn't planned on taking an expedition to Samaria. Anybody ever taken a, a mission trip before in your life? Just raise your hand. Let's see. Anybody out there? You know what it takes. There's some planning involved. There's some prep involved. You write a letter out. You send it to all your friends and your family, and you got to raise the funds, and hopefully somebody will support you, and you get a team, and you come up with all of these initiatives and these outreaches, and you're going to engage the, the people. And some of you have even taken cross-cultural evangelism classes where you learn how to engage people who don't speak your language and who grew up in a different background with different traditions and all of those things. Philip had none of that stuff. He was just literally thrown right in. No prep, no plan, no tools, no training. Just a man hurling down the mountain with no idea what he was doing. And yet, what has been abundantly clear from the very beginning of this chapter is that Philip was marked by the presence and the power of God. I mean, from the very beginning, for example, as soon as he gets to Samaria, he doesn't hide, he doesn't try to make allies, all of the human things that you'd think a refugee would do, would do because he's fleeing persecution. He doesn't plan future escape. He just starts telling people about Jesus. You know, the whole reason that he was kicked out of Jerusalem. You know, just keep, keep, it, keep it going. It's worked so far. Not only that, but he's so filled with the Spirit that he starts doing all kinds of signs and miracles, and he's casting out demons, and he's healing the sick, and the entire region of Samaria is flipped upside down for Jesus. There's this revival in Samaria. And it's all because this ordinary guy named Philip was being directed by his father. Then, at the peak of the revival, Corin just showed us at the peak of all the excitement and all of the joy, God sends an angel. Just imagine that. God sends an angel, and it's not to pat him on the back, and it's not to say, hey, I got even more for you to do here because you're doing such an awesome job. You, you just flipped this entire region so pumped. The angel says, hey, I'm going to take you away from all the cool stuff, and I'm going to send you to the desert, to the middle of nowhere. Look back at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, to the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. We'll talk about all the details next week. I'm just going to talk about one idea today. In other words, pack your bags. God is sending you to the middle of nowhere. Um, leave the revival. Leave the movement. Leave the excitement. Leave the joy. I'm sending you to the wasteland where no one is. Nothing's happening. And that's what the angel tells him to do, and guess what Philip does? Let's do it. He's directed by his father. Then he gets to the desert, and to his great surprise, there is somebody else there, a eunuch being carried by a bunch of men because he's a really important guy. More on that next week. Going back home, look at verse 27. He rose and went. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Kandake, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Again, let's stop here. There is no hesitation whatsoever in Philip. When, when the Spirit speaks, 
Philip obeys. When God says go, Philip doesn't walk, he doesn't meander, he doesn't question, he doesn't debate, he literally sprints. Again, every step that he takes is directed by his father. Then he gets to the eunuch and he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah and immediately starts engaging him with the gospel again because he's always being directed by his father. He asks him if he understands what he's reading. Of course, I don't understand. He's frustrated. And so he says, okay, well, let me tell you, verse 35. Then Philip opens his mouth and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he tells him the good news about Jesus. His words, his life, his steps, everything he does is totally directed by the father. Eunuch believes, he's baptized, and in some supernatural, mystical way, Philip is teleported to another place, and he just keeps telling people about Jesus. Everything we see about this man's life in Acts 8 is dominated by the leading, guidance, and the direction of his father. And so I want to stop here. This is the only thought I have for you. This is the only thing we're going to talk about today, and it's going to be a while, but we'll, this is all we're talking about. Is that how you would define your experience of God? I think there's an even more significant question, or at least for me. Do you even think that that is possible or available that you could experience God like that? For you here in the West, in the 21st century, 2023, Charlotte, North Carolina. Do you think it's possible do you think it's accessible for you to experience God like Philip did in Acts chapter 8? I think we get so caught up in the idea that Christianity is nothing more than a list of do's and don'ts that we miss the fact that Christianity at its core is ultimately about experiencing God. I'll, I'll prove it to you if you don't believe me. John 10, the sheep hear his voice. They hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them, directs them, guides them out. He's brought out all of his own. He goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And then what does it say in verse 10? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came so that you could have life and life abundantly. What's life abundantly? It's God. He is life. Skip ahead five chapters to John 15. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, you are a vision-impaired 12-year-old child speeding down a triple black diamond if you don't have his voice, if you don't have his direction, you're going to hit a tree. You're going to fall off a cliff. You're going to crash and burn. Apart from him, you can do nothing. That's what he's saying. This is what I want you to see today. This is all I'm going to be showing you. At its core, Christianity is not an ethical code. It is not a philosophical system. It is not a bunch of theological ideas. At its core, Christianity is communion with the Father in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's what Christianity is. And if you've experienced anything other than that or you are experiencing anything other than that, you are missing it. 
the reason we're told to pray without ceasing, it's not because God likes to give us impossible commands. The reason we're told to pray without ceasing is because he wants to invite us into the enjoyment of his constant presence, to invite him into every aspect of our lives, because it's so vital that if he doesn't show up in every aspect of our lives, we're going to crash and burn, because apart from him, we can do nothing. He wants us to encounter his love. He wants us to experience his leading. He wants us to enjoy his life. That's what Philip had in Acts chapter 8. And so again, let me ask you, is that how you would define your experience of God? Do you even think it's possible? Let me just say, if you've answered no to any one of those questions, I know exactly how you feel. I've been where you are, and I was where you are for most of my life. Honestly, up until six years ago, I would have said no, too. I'm 36, by the way. So you, you know where I am in my life. While I'm still in process, though, and I'm still in process, and I'm, I'm still just barely making progress, I am more convinced today than ever before that what Philip experienced of God in Acts chapter 8 is actually available and possible and expected for you and for me today. Your life can be totally marked by the guidance and leading and direction of the voice of God today. And that's what I want to show you. So let's get into it. First thing that stands out to me, and there are only two. There are more, but we, we got to save it for next week. Stands out to me in Acts chapter 8 is that God directs his people by speaking through his spirit. Look back at verse 29. Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. That's the line that's just been, it just keeps ringing out to me all week. I can't get past this line. I can't get past this. And the spirit told Philip. He told Philip. The Spirit spoke to Philip. Go and do that. Now, we don't know exactly how the Spirit told Philip to go to the chariot, but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he did because it's explicit. There's no implication here. And this kind of direct communication happens over and over and over again in the book of Acts. For example, two chapters later, the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter in a vision and tells him to go eat with Gentiles. Can't wait for that one. That one's going to be fun. Acts 13, Holy Spirit speaks to the church and tells the church to set aside Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries. Uh, Acts 16, the Holy Spirit speaks to Paul and forbids him from going to Asia. Acts 20, the Holy Spirit draws Paul to Jerusalem, compels Paul to go to Jerusalem, and then warns him about all the suffering he's going to face there. On and on it goes. God directs his people by speaking through his spirit. And I want to stop here and, and I want to emphasize this for a minute because we believe in the power of scripture. And we believe in the sufficiency of scripture. And we believe in the authority of scripture. And we believe that God guides us and directs us through scripture. Amen? Okay. Um, the Bible is one of the main tools that the spirit uses to show us the father and show us the son. As we just sang and asked and prayed, it is absolutely vital. That's why it's called the sword of the Spirit. It's his tool 
This is what he uses. It's alive and active and it's powerful and it's profitable and it cuts us going in and it heals us going out. <coughs> Sufficient for life and godliness. But what you and I need to understand is that while God uses scripture to reveal himself to us, he has not called us to a relationship with a book. I'm just going to say it. He has called us into a relationship with himself. I didn't know what that meant until six years ago. He wants us to experience fellowship with him. Communion, deep communion with him. To know his voice, to hear his voice, to follow his voice in every aspect of our lives. And that means more than hearing his voice on the pages of scripture. Because that's obvious. That's obvious. It also means hearing his voice as his spirit testifies to our spirit, like Paul talked about in Romans 8. I'm just going to show you scripture right now. It means hearing his voice as we test prophecies, as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5. If the prophecies were obviously from God, we wouldn't have to test them. More on that later. There's a lot here. Habakkuk 2.1 says, I will take my stand at the watch post at my station. I will station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what he will say to me. In other words, we hear his voice even as we go to him in prayer. That prayer is two-way. That we speak to God and we listen and the Spirit speaks to us as we pray. More often than not, the Spirit speaks to us as we gather together in a setting like this. Isn't that amazing? That's why we're commanded not to neglect it. To gather together so that we can spur one another on to love and good works by speaking truth. And as we speak truth, the Spirit speaks through us to each other. Check this out. Ephesians 4 says that even as we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, the Spirit is speaking. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones once put it. He said, do we go to God's house expecting something to happen? Or do we just go to listen to a sermon and to sing our hymns and meet with one another? Now, how often does this vital idea enter our minds that we are in the presence of the living God and that the Holy Spirit is in the church that we may feel the touch of his power? How much do we think in terms of coming together to meet with God and to worship him and to stand before him and to listen to him? Is there not this appalling danger that we are just content because we have correct beliefs. We've lost the life. We've lost the vital thing, the power, the thing that really makes worship worship, which is spirit and truth. Did you come expecting to hear the spirit today? Or did you come expecting to hear a sermon? God directs us by speaking through his spirit and, and the spirit speaks in all kinds of ways. The deeper, this, hear this, the deeper we go into fellowship with the spirit, 
The more we walk with him, the more we depend on him, the more we submit to him, the more we obey him. And we talk about cutting the rope of our sin. Imagine that you're a sailboat and there's a rope that is tying you to the shore. That's your sin. It's keeping you from sailing on the open seas. And you cut that rope, you confess your sin to the spirit, and then you raise your sail and you say, spirit, guide me. You're the wind, you're the pneuma. Blow, lead, be the power. The more we do that, the more recognizable and the more vital his voice will become in our lives. I read a story a few weeks ago about a little Indian pastor named Paul who understood what this meant. And uh, the, the, the tribesmen in India are smaller than normal Indians, and Paul was smaller than them. So he's like a really tiny guy. I read about this story in Dr. Michael Brown's book, uh, Authentic Fire. He was a man who walked with God. Uh, talked with God on a regular basis. He would wake up early in the morning to meet with God in the jungle. And that's kind of a scary thought. The jungles of India are not safe. I mean, you're thinking about all the snakes that can kill you and the tigers, and it's, it's that. Um, he would wake up before the sun came out, before the dawn, early in the morning. And he would walk in the jungle and be with God, and he'd always go to the same place. And he'd talk with God, and as he's talking to God in the darkness, a light would shine and just rest on him. And he would commune with God in the jungle of India. One day he got up a little bit later than usual, even though it was still dark outside. As he made his way to his special prayer place in the jungle, he was shocked to look up ahead and look at his prayer place and see that the light was already there, waiting for him. And he was shocked and he was humbled and a little bit terrified and he just fell flat on his face. And then he crawled (laughs) into the light and communed with God. On another occasion, the Holy Spirit told him, and I love this, that he wanted him to care for the orphans in India like George Mueller had cared for the orphans in Bristol. And he's like, okay, let's do it. But he'd never heard of George Mueller before. And so he, he runs out to the village And he starts talking to the other Christians, and he's like, I'm supposed to start an orphanage like George Mueller. Do you know who George Mueller is? (laughs) Thankfully, one of them did. Do you believe that God can speak to you like that? Up until six years ago, I did not. He's had to open my eyes with really powerful things. Maybe I'll tell you about them later. Does that kind of experience seem strange or maybe impossible for you? Is it outside of the scope of what you think is available and accessible for you and your experience of God? Francis Schaeffer once put it like this, the great philosopher. Christianity is not just a mental assent that certain doctrines are true, not even that the right doctrines are true. That's just the beginning. Believe the right things. You say you believe that Jesus is God, and you say, well, okay, wonderful. You say that he's the only way to God, and you've put your trust in him. Wonderful. That's just the beginning. This would be rather like a starving man sitting in front of great heaps of food and saying, I believe that food exists. I believe it is real, and yet never eating it. It's not enough merely to say I'm a Christian 
And then in practice, live as if present contact with the supernatural were something far off or strange. Many Christians I know seem to act as though they come into contact with the supernatural just twice. Once when they are justified and become a Christian, and once when they die. And some Christians seem to think that when they're born again, they become a self-contained unit like a storage battery. And from that time, they have to go on their own pep and their own power until they die. But this is wrong. After we are justified once for all through faith in Christ, we are to live in supernatural communion with the Lord every moment. We are to be like lights plugged into an electric socket. Guys, God directs people through his spirit, and his spirit speaks in all kinds of ways. Sometimes that means just an impression on your heart. Sometimes it means that he, he recalls something or someone to your mind. Uh, more often than not, it is scripture. And so the more you know of scripture, the more the spirit's going to speak to you, because that's his tool, that's his sword, that's his favorite weapon. And so the more you are drenched in scripture, the more he's just going to be bringing it to your heart and to your mind all the time. But have you ever, have you ever like had a, an impression, man, I need to pray for someone right now. Man, I need to give someone this word right now. I need to call this person right now. Who do you think that is? That's the spirit of the living God. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and thought, man, I should pray? That's the spirit of God. You know what happens when you roll over and go back to sleep? You quench him. You know what happens when you wake up and you go out to the quiet, desolate, dark place and you're all alone and you get on your hands and knees or you get on your face and you cry out to God. Supernatural communion with the Father. And he speaks in all kinds of ways. The more we walk with him and commune with him and submit to him and depend on him, the more we will be able to recognize his voice when he speaks. That's the first thing I want to show you. Second, God doesn't just direct some of his people by speaking through his spirit. He directs all of his people by speaking through his spirit. See, I think so many of us here in the West, we're not convinced that we can experience this kind of supernatural, extraordinary, vital communion with God and, and, and I think even if it was possible, most of us think that it's reserved for a select few. It's reserved for, like, I think about the Great Awakening, you know, hundreds of years ago in Jonathan Edwards, or the Second Great Awakening and Finney. And uh, I think about the, you know, the Pipers of the world and, and, and all of these guys that have some sort of deep um, relationship with God. It's reserved for the select few. Maybe for the apostles, maybe for the prophets, maybe for the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, but not for people like me. You ever felt that? Then you look back at Acts chapter 8, and you see right away, Philip was just an ordinary guy like you and me. Acts 8.1, everyone fled the city of Jerusalem except for the apostles. Philip's nobody. Ordinary guy. 
And then in Acts chapter 10, you see this guy named Cornelius, who's, who's he's just a military guy. He's in the army. He's a Roman officer. And he gets a vision from God. Then you get to Acts 19. And you get these 12 ordinary guys in Ephesus. They receive the Holy Spirit. Immediately after getting the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues and they start preaching the gospel and prophesying in the synagogue. They do it for two years. And then Ephesus is flipped upside down. And the result of their preaching is that, and I'm quoting Acts 19, everyone who lived in Asia heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Twelve ordinary guys. Just like you, just like me. God doesn't just speak to and direct and empower some of his children. If you are his son, if you are his daughter, he will speak to you as well. I mentioned George Mueller earlier. And one of my favorite stories of his life uh, illustrates this perfectly. The story goes like this. Uh, one morning, he woke up, was praying as he always does. This was his habit. He wouldn't even get to work until he had prayed for two or three hours because he realized how vital it was. He wanted to hear the voice of God. And uh, they didn't have food for the day for all the orphans at the orphanage. And so he, he's praying. He's convinced God's going to provide the food. So he goes into the dining room, and all the orphans are lined up at this just long table. Imagine, I don't, I don't actually know what it looked like. I just kind of imagine Oliver Twist, you know, and it's just like a long table with orphans everywhere. And, um, all of the plates are on the table, but there's no food on the plates, and so the orphans are just staying there. What are we going to do? Nothing's in the cupboard. Nothing's in the pantry. No money's in the bank. George Mueller lifts his hand and he prays, Dear Father, we thank you for what you're about to provide for us. And as soon as he's done praying, as the account goes, there's a knock on the door. And Mueller just smiles. Here it is. Sends one of his assistants to the door, opens it up. It just so happens to be the baker with a load of freshly baked bread. Look at what the baker said, and I'm going to quote him. He says, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow, I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 o'clock and I baked some fresh bread and have brought it over. Do you need it? <laughs> I'll never forget about six years ago when the Lord started to open my eyes to the wonder of this kind of vital communion with him. It honestly started when I, uh, when I was praying for clarity of a call to come to Charlotte and start this church to uproot my family and move to a new city and start a church, which we, we moved here five years ago. Church started four years ago. Um, and uh, I, was, I was trying to raise funds. And, and if you've ever tried to raise funds for a business, you know it's hard. If you've ever tried to raise funds for a mission trip, you know it's hard. It's, it's really hard to raise money in general. Um, it's, it's also, like, I think it's extra hard to raise funds for a church plant. Like, hey, me and my family are moving to another city. There's a thousand churches there. You want to help us? Um, it's a lot of confusion, you know. Let's just put it that way. Uh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and the best thing I've ever done in my life. And it was the best thing I've ever done because of stories like this. So um, most of the time when I would call people, I'd get hung up on, like, as fast as possible. I got ghosted 
more times than I could count. I get it. I don't fault people. Um, but there was one day I was especially discouraged. Uh, Caroline and I had decided that we would sell our house. We'd put our house on the market once we had raised 80% of the funds we needed to live for a year. We felt like that was enough faith, okay? 80% of the funds we need for a year, then we'll put our house on the market and we'll move to Charlotte. And so raising funds, um, I don't remember the exact number we were at. I don't remember what 80% was, but I knew we needed $10,000 to hit 80%. And so out of the blue, I'm just in my office at, at my old church. I'm a college pastor at the time. And, and um, I get a call from a guy that I barely knew. I talked to him twice. He was friends with my sister. And that was the extent of our relationship. I knew him because he was friends with my sister. And he called me. And that never happens. And so he calls me and he's like, Ben, I heard that you're planting a church in Charlotte and we want to help. What do you need? And so I got all the fear of man and I got like real nervous and sweaty palms. And I'm like, oh, you know, anything you can give would be helpful. Like, oh, thank you so much. And oh, it's so wonderful. And he's like, no, Ben, what do you need? And, and, and I'm like, well, we, we, we said that once we hit 80%, we'll, we'll put our house on the market and we'll, we'll move to Charlotte. And so we're, we're getting pretty close. He's like, Ben, what do you need? And so finally I was just like, we need $10,000. And he's like, that's crazy. This morning, God told me that we were supposed to give you $10,000. <laughs> I was like, God told you what? And all of my little theological boxes just started exploding. <clears throat> what I love about, what about this guy is that he, he's not an apostle, he's not a prophet, he's not a pastor, he's not an evangelist, he's not a teacher. He, he was in senior management at a rock quarry. And that's the point I want you to see. It doesn't matter if you're a baker or if you're a businessman, or if you're a soldier like Cornelius, if you are a child of God, he intends to speak to you and to direct your life in a vital, tangible, supernatural way. Our problem isn't that God doesn't want to direct us and commune with us and speak to us. Our problem is that we haven't given him the space to do it. I was thinking about Beethoven this past week. My son's learning Moonlight Sonata, which is my favorite song of all time. Um, if you know, you know. Um, when Beethoven was 30 years old, he started losing his hearing. And uh, at first, he, he raged against his decline. I mean, could you imagine? Uh, just a slow process of 15 years of gradually losing your hearing. And he used, to, he used to bang on the piano as hard as he could and as loud as he could, destroying the pianos just so that he could try to hear what he was playing. Until finally, when he was 45, he went completely deaf the irony, the beautiful irony of Beethoven, though, is that 
while he had always been a musical genius and, and prodigy, it wasn't until after he had lost his hearing that he produced his greatest music. Most notably, his Ninth Symphony, which totally reinvented classical music, and we still love it today. As one historian put it, and I'll, and I'll quote him, it seems a mystery that Beethoven became more original and more brilliant as a composer in inverse proportion to his ability to hear. Deafness freed Beethoven as a composer because he no longer had society's soundtrack in his ears. Silence, paradoxically, allowed Beethoven to hear something new. Guys, we live in a culture that is constantly humming and buzzing and chiming and ringing. And there is almost always a constant pull to the noise of the day, to the, to the distraction of the day, to the notifications of the day. If we want to hear from God, we need to turn down the volume on everything else. Guys, this happens at the beginning of the day, and I'm just going to tell you, this is not a legalistic thing. So many people have been lied to and have been led away from deep, supernatural communion with God because they've been told that it's legalistic to wake up every morning and being with, be with God. Um, this starts in the morning when you wake up early to be with him in the silence, in the stillness, in the darkness, and just open yourself up before him and say, I need to hear from you. And you get the word out, and you meditate on his word, and you reflect on his word. Maybe you memorize his word. Maybe you sing his word, and you're talking to him, and, and you're listening to him. In the morning, it starts there. It's not legalism. This is the invitation to communion with God. Oh, I think our enemy loves convincing us that, that rhythms and rituals and routines are, 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 are against our freedom when actually they lead to our freedom. And you know this. This is true of everything else in life. You want to be free in the gym? You want to lift tons of weight? You better get there early and you better do it every single day because freedom comes as the result of ritual and routine and discipline. You point to anything else in your life and you know that true freedom is the result of discipline. And the enemy comes in and says, that's true of everything except for God. God just got to be easy, instant gratification. Just read your five-minute devotional and move on with life. That's enough. And then you read the five-minute devotional and you close it and you move on with life and you're like, I don't even think it's real. I don't feel a thing. Well, the enemy's tricked you. And your flesh has convinced you that sleep is more important than communion with God. That you could wake up at five to go to the gym, but not to pray. The psalmist wrote, Psalm 119, I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I wait for your words. I stay awake all night 
so I can think about your promises. That's where it starts. Finding those desolate places, those quiet places, those dark places to be alone with God. Give him space. Turn down the volume of everything else and listen. Then, as you go throughout your day, <laughs> abide, abide, stay, hang out, be with him. Invite him into every aspect of your life. This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Thessalonians. It's constant prayer. Don't quench the spirit in your life. Test prophecies. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in everything. Rejoice in all things. That's what it looks like to welcome the Holy Spirit into your life. You say, I want you to be a part of it. I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. I want you to use me and fill me. Whatever you want from me, I'm yours. You take it. Have all of me. Guys, our problem is not that God doesn't want to speak to us. Our problem is that we have cranked up every other voice to full volume, and we can't hear him. So let me encourage you as we close. <laughs> if you feel like there is more of God to be experienced, you feel correctly. If you feel like there is still more for you to taste and see and delight in, you feel correctly. There is. You can have deep, abiding, supernatural communion with the Father in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And so, to the lukewarm Christian who longs for red-hot fire, Jesus says in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone would hear my voice and open the door, I would come into him and I would dine with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Listen, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so that's my call to you today. That's the call on my life today. God longs for fellowship with you. He sent his son to die for fellowship with you. He bore your sin and your transgression on the cross, and then he rose three days later so that he could have fellowship with you. And right now, he is standing at the door of your heart, and he's knocking, and he's waiting. So open it up and let him in. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. I'm going to invite you to pray where you are. If you want to kneel, you can. If you want to sit, you can. If you want to stand, you can. Whatever posture you find appropriate. And I just want you to talk to the Spirit.